This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. My guest today, he's a private utility system ex- expert. He knows water. He knows sewer. He knows the treatment plants of lagoons. Super smart guy. I had an opportunity to do some due diligence with him for a mutual client of ours. Looked at a complicated park with a treatment plant and a lagoon system, and it had a lot of hair on it. Uh, and my guest here, Philip Merrill, really helped us uh, underwrite the deal and give us some cost estimates. So please help me welcome my guest, Philip Merrill. Good to be here. So, uh, as- so tell, us, tell us more about yourself, Philip. I, I, know you, I know you a little bit, obviously, but for our guests that don't, um, tell us your background, because you're, you're one of the few experts that, I, that I'm aware of exist in this space. And, and you're also a mobile home park owner, which I forgot to mention. So that's kind of cool that you own a park and you're an expert in all things private utilities. Yeah. So I kind of got my background. As soon as I could walk, I was on the back of a drill rig with my dad. So I kind of drew up drilling wells and doing all that sort of stuff. And then about 15, 20 years ago, we transitioned into managing a lot of uh, public water and then the sewer kind of came with it so right now I think we're operating 13 or 14 different uh, municipal scale water systems anywhere from like a 30 space mobile home park to a four or five hundred home community so we kind of have the whole gamut we got lagoons we got wells we got package plants you name it um, so we get the daily drama that goes with it and all the fun. So, you know, that's, I'm licensed in, I don't know if I'm licensed in Kansas yet. They're still processing my license, but most everything we do is out in Oregon. Um, We own a park in Kansas, a lagoon park. So that's kind of my background as far as the utility business. All right. Well, thanks, Philip. I appreciate that. So, I think, and I've covered some other, some of the stuff in other podcasts, you know, as far as water sewer, obviously everybody likes city water, city sewer, the best, especially if it's direct build by the city. Next best is submeter. After that, you get into private, private world and private on the water, you know, typically well, and then private on the sewer, you've typically got the packaging treatment plant and sept and or septic and or lagoon. And there's a number of different types of lagoon. Could you maybe hit the, the high level, uh, describe what each of those are and then maybe the, the cost to replace them. I know it's going to depend on the size, for example, of the, the community, but just to help us, you know, the next, I want to go through the useful life of each of these as well. I know the, the one we looked at together, I think it was the, the treatment plant was, uh, you said 20 to 30 year useful life. This one was about 15 years old. So I had about 15 years left. And then uh, they had a different kind of bubbler lagoon style as well. So maybe just spend a couple minutes here and educate us on this. And then I'm sure I'll have some questions to dive into more, but I know you just got this stuff down pat. So I'm excited to hear. Yeah. Everybody pretty much understands septic. So we'll kind of stay out of that uh, realm and talk about lagoons and package plants. Um, you really have to think of where is the treated water going? I mean, are you discharging into a river or stream? 
Are you irrigating with it? Is it evaporating? With the package plant in the lagoon, it can go either. Any one of those options could be taking place. I mean, I have a package plant that's going to a drain field after treatment. I have a package plant that's going to an infiltration pond. I have a lagoon that's going to irrigation. So, Explain, package, explain, of, pa explain packaging plant to our, to our guests, because you know this stuff. I know what a packaging plant is. But for those that haven't seen it, what is its purpose and, and, and what are the, what's it made out of and, how, and what are the moving parts? And, and that'll kind of help us wrap our head around it without actually yep. looking at one right now. So in the wastewater world, uh, you're in the bacteria business. So lagoons and packaging plants, you're growing bacteria that consume the organic matter in the sewer. So in a package plant, you basically have four different, either metal or cement, and sometimes even pond-like structures. Um, most package plants are made out of steel, and typically they're buried below ground, and you'll have four different basins, basically. You'll have the screen on the head at the beginning, and then hopefully you'll have what we call an equalization basin, um, that basically anytime you get any high flows, it levels out the flow to the, the bacteria treatment area. The bacteria live in a basin we call an aeration basin. So a package plant is a very active as far as inputs. So you're generally 30 minutes to an hour every, 30 to 40 minutes every hour, you're putting a lot of oxygen in this mixture of bacteria. So typically in like a 20,000 gallon basin, which maybe like 10 by 30 feet long, you'll have 400 pounds of bacteria growing in there. And those bacteria eat the organic matter. They reproduce, create more bacteria in this aeration basin. And that's where all the work is taking place. So you got your equalization basin, level out the flows, your aeration basin, where all the bacteria is living. And these are aerobic uh, critters, bacteria. Thus, the fun we had out in Topeka where the controllers were broken and there was no air to the bacteria. So the plant was dead. So the wastewater flows through the aeration basin to what we call a clarifier, where basically the bacteria clump together in a flock and they, have, they get heavy and then they settle out. And then the clear water leaves that and either goes to chlorination or further treatment. And the bugs that settle to the bottom, the bacteria get recirculated back to the aeration basin. And that's why we call it an activated sludge process. So these bugs just go in a loop and they continue to eat and reproduce. And when you get too many bugs, because they're reproducing, you have to waste them. And that's what, once you waste them, you call that sludge. So that would be your fourth. So you have your equalization basin, aeration basin, clarifier, and then your chlorination chamber. And then you have to have a fifth chamber. What, what are you gonna do with your extra sludge? And you'll waste that. And then every one to three months, You'll typically on a, a you know, 100 home site be sending maybe 3,000 gallons every two months to a local sewer facility. And that's your sludge. So that's, 
It's a very active process, typically requires an operator to be on site one to three times a week, whereas a lagoon, it's one to three times a month. So, and lagoon typically has no input. You're can, I pa- can, I pa- input. Can, I pause, can I pause you for a minute? Because yep. you're, you're, you're like PhD level in this stuff, right? So back, I'm going to dumb it back down for me and for our audience. And let me make sure I followed this process. And, and having been there on site with you, I think I got it. But as I can repeat it, I'm going to put it in layman's terms a little bit. Tell me if I misunderstood it. So some of these inputs, people flush the toilet. Whatever's in the toilet goes down the pipes. And instead of going to the city, it goes into a, a big bin. And the bin is full of this crap literally crap. And then it goes to another bin where it's equalized and traded. It goes to another bin where there's bugs, like literally insects that eat this stuff for a living, right? They eat it, they reproduce this. And then as a result, you put more oxygen, more air in there, which is what the, the pumps do and the timers to keep the air flowing so that the bugs can survive, continue to eat it up, gobble it up so it goes away. And if you get too many bugs, it becomes a problem. They become sludge. You put them in another bin and then that bin fills up, and every once in a while, you got to you hire a guy with a big truck, haul it away, and take it to a city or other dump facility. The goal is to keep the bugs aerated so they can be active, and, and then they can eat up the crud so that you don't have to dump it down somewhere else and, and, and eat it up. And, and after through layers of purification, it becomes quasi-clean water, and then it goes to the last, last tranche is either chlorination to clean it or it goes to an additional treatment facility, like in the one we looked at in Topeka, was an into a lagoon where it was further treated. We need to talk about lagoon here in a minute, where it'll eventually be released into a stream or river and in a manner that is not harmful to society. Correct. You're hired. So we're hoping for we're hoping for 85% removal of basically your suspended solids and your organic matter. That's what we're hoping for. So when we say it's a relatively pure substance, we're discharging back into some water body. So that's the, you got the basic idea there. All right. Sounds good, man. Okay. So I think we got a pretty good feel there for packaging plant. What is one of those, I know you said steel and or concrete, these, these bins, as I call them, they're basins. How much does one of these facilities cost for the hundred park? 100 pad park example and obviously if there's only 20 pads you don't need as big a basins or as, as robust of a facility because there's less toilets being flushed right so typically a package plant for 100 space park probably three to six hundred thousand dollars for a steel plant and that's going to basically come on the back of a semi and they're going to show up and you're going to dig a hole and drop it in the ground and you're almost it, the nice thing about the package plants delivered that way is it's a fast setup, you know, less than a week you can be up and rolling usually. Got it. So obviously, basin, yeah. you know, it's probably going to cost more because you're going to build it on site. What's the useful life of steel versus cement? Uh, if you get 30 to 40 out of steel, you're doing pretty good. Cement, I would say probably 50 to 60 years is an easy life. You're going to get a lot more life out of the cement one. And how much more cement cost? I would say probably 30 or 40% more because you're going to have to pour it on site. 
you if you actually manage the project yourself you might actually be able to do it cheaper you know but it's more involved right okay and what other what other moving parts are there between the the, the, the blowers or the fans the timers what else can go wrong and you know you got a professional operator like yourself you hire to monitor it you know weekly or so what, what other expenses are there from an, on an ongoing basis um, so we can get a feel for that as well. Yeah, so number one cost is generally your operator. You're gonna pay them um, 500 to 2000 a month, depending on market and how many times a week you want them to be there. Uh, some states like Ohio actually specify the number of times that you're per week that your licensed operator has to be there. Uh, most other states, they don't care. There's no operator must be on site so many times per month. So technically you could spin a lot, some of it off on your maintenance guy and save some of the labor there. Then your sludge bill is probably going to be 800 to 1500 a month. In a, a chemical costs, you'll have some, you know, probably less than a hundred bucks a month. And then your lab, you could burn a couple hundred a month. So you're throwing a lot of numbers around there. So all in, I could easily be a thousand to twenty five hundred a month right. on on operational expenses, not counting any reserves to replace the main equipment every thirty years or so, thirty to fifty years. Yeah, I pretty much assume thirty to forty thousand a year as an operating budget for a package plant. So here's what a lot of people don't realize. I mean, it's simple economies of scale. If you have a 30 space park versus a hundred space park, your operational cost is largely controlled by your operator, how much you're paying them. Right. That's your number one bill. And you're still gonna have to have the operator on the 30 space park. So if you're spending, okay, you're only spending 30K on a, a year on a 30 space park, that's brutal. Right, you guys are worse so, than lawyers. <laughs> but I mean, you guys take a pay cut. No, you guys provide valuable work. That's a good point. I mean, that's a that's a hidden cost. You know, economies of scale um, on thirty space park, it's going to really eat it up because there's not the economies on a hundred space park. The the other hidden cost that I want to mention is on your your refinance or your eventual sale. You're going to get hit on the cap rate uh, because everybody that comes out of Frank's boot camp learns private utilities are not as desirable and for the opera on the operational expense you just mentioned that's going to obviously decrease the noi so you're going to get hit on the noi which is going to be reflected in the value but i think you're also going to get hit on the cap rate uh, i would estimate at least 50 basis points just because of the perceived amount of risk uh, and, and frankly because the, the extra requirement to spend money manage another person potential uh, biohazard or life safety issues that could come up from a, a regulatory body and then of course the reserves and maintenance because i mean you also mentioned you know chemicals i mean part of this the deal here is the other unknown uh, cost or risk is when is the government gonna say these packaging plants are yucky you got to sign up for city sewer at x dollars and or these packaging plants are putting out too much of x chemical we need to regulate it can you give us your opinion on you know, macro level, what is going to happen to these things long-term? And and then so I think phosphate levels is one you measure and some others. Uh, how 
the unknown of bureaucracy could negatively impact your your project. Yeah, so most permits actually buried in the boiler plating have two provisions. Number one provision, if city utilities becomes available, you must hook up to it, even if you're running a functional plant. So once they run the main line in front of you, you're required by 99% of your operating permits to connect. So the city has you over the barrel on tap fees, right? Yeah. So basically, whatever they want to charge you, you know, if they want to charge you three grand a pad on a hundred space park, you've just been plundered right there. Yeah, especially if it was two, two or three or four years after you just spent three hundred thousand on a new state-of-the-art facility that is doing a great job treating your sewer. Right. I mean, that's that's it's hidden in the boilerplate, which nobody reads. Don't say nobody. nobody. I know you read it. You know I read it. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm just saying they got most nobody, most everybody. Two pages of conditions and then 30 pages of boilerplate. You know how it goes in contract language. So, and then the next thing is there's also buried in there what we call anti-backsliding, fancy name for the government is obligated via federal regulation to be turning the screws to you every opportunity they get. They must increase your reporting requirements and lower the limits. It's written right in the federal law. So right now you may only have a permit that says you remove your total suspended solids and your organic, but nutrient removal, like we talked about in Topeka, ammonia, nitrates, phosphorus, all that is coming. It is happening in a lot of states. And that's the, when is it coming, is the big discussion a lot. Uh, We actually got them, the government, to kind of quasi-commit when they were going to turn the screws on that Kansas park, which was nice. They don't usually do that. Um, So it just means it's going to cost you more to run the plant, or you're going to have to do some pretty significant capital expenditures to meet the additional requirements. So it's not an if, but when equation. Permits are usually every five years they get renewed. So that's your big exposure because that's when they're going to turn the screws to you. So if you're buying a park that's got six months left on your permit, you probably should have already applied for the new permit. Right. Stall closing until you get the result. Right. Yeah. That's great stuff. That's uh, thanks for sharing that bit of wisdom on those permits. All right, so I think we've hit treatment plant pretty well. Tell us about Lagoon and the pros and cons of that, including the including the operating expenses. I've had I've never owned a treatment plant park, but I have owned Lagoon plant. I had a three stage Lagoon, didn't have the bubblers, so I'm uh, I'm familiar with both, but I'm, I'm more familiar with the, the the more let nature do its course, if you will, of the three stage Lagoon. Yeah, so a Lagoon basically you have one to three ponds, hopefully more than one, uh, as we'll get to in a second. And they may or may not have bubblers or air. So once you start adding air, they become very similar to a package plant. It's just the package plant in the ground. You're growing bacteria again. So in a non-aerated lagoon, same deal. All the fun comes from the park via your pipes, dumped into the your first pond, where your bacteria are growing, remember they need air. So they're getting air from the wind that's blowing 
and from actually the algae that is in the pond. So the algae is taking sunlight in and releasing oxygen into the water column. So that's how they get their oxygen. And then, you know, that water flows into your next pond where the bugs continue to eat on it. And then it flows to the third pond where, you know, most of it is consumed by that point. And then you have to do something with the treated water. It's either going to be evaporated, meaning it's never leaving, or you're going to irrigate with it, or you're going to discharge it either continuously or seasonally uh, to a river or some other water body. So it's passive, meaning you need a lot of surface area. You need a big pond. Right. I typically say you need an acre per 50 homes. I, we operate a 200 space park here in Oregon. It's got nine acres of ponds. Wow. That's bigger than my whole Kansas park, the park area. Yeah, nine acres. That's the one I saw a picture of you swimming in, isn't it? The Kansas one? Yeah, that was the... The, they say uh, it's supposed I, to I sold flow the downhill, one. but it flows uphill to owners sometimes. Yeah, I saw an owner. Or I, I had a house we sold one time on the moon. The person got there and they're like, oh, cool. You guys got a pond? I was just like, it's not one of those ponds. You don't, you don't fish in it. You don't swim in it. Just stay away from the pond. Yeah, we call them brown trout. They have a really soft mouth when you hook them. So you got to be careful. <laughs> I've never heard that. That's pretty good. All right. So that's that's Lagoon. I think I follow you there. So the bubbler is it literally looks like a water fountain and it shoots water up, which is active. So it creates more, you know, waves and ripples, which is eventually essentially creates oxygen and allows more bugs and more rapidity to the process, which then thereby requires a smaller surface area. Is that accurate? That's accurate. It's like you're supercharging your car. You put a blower on there so it's got more horsepower to get more done. So Got it. okay. All right. So let's touch on septic real quick. I know you said most of us know, but I, I didn't know. I don't know everything about septic. We bought a park in Iowa with septic and it had the, the tanks and it had the leach fields, but, um, and one of the two were failing. So we, we caught that during a state inspection, but tell us this high level on septic um, as well, because I see those, I see those somewhat commonly. And then I bought a park in Illinois one time that was city sewer. And I, and I inspected the park myself, like it had city sewer. But then after we bought it, first time it rained, somebody called and said, hey, when are you guys, are you guys going to fix the septic? Because every time it rains, stuff comes up in my shower and my sink. And I was like, there's no septic. And they're like, yeah, these last four homes in the corner, they're on septic. And the prior owner tried to, rather than pump it, guess what he did to get rid of the, to, to pump out the septic? Opened the top and threw a stick of dynamite in there, hoping to break up the mess and it would like work faster but of course he broke the tank because he threw a stick of dynamite in there and then we had a failed septic system and had to hook up to the city sewer for four pads so that was not fun so yeah uh tell us a little bit about septic and, and what, it, what it means so septic is basically what a lot of people have in rural america for a single family home it's just slightly supersized for mobile home park land so the sewer leaves the home and goes to a tank. Um, probably it's cement. Hopefully it's not steel that's rusted out, maybe fiberglass. Um, the big discussion in mobile home park land is how many homes per tank. Yep. That's, you know, one to three on a thousand or 1500 gallon tank is my 
recommendation. It really comes down to how often do you want to pump it, which really goes back to how much grease are they dumping down the drain. And that's, uh, I mean, the tank ideally should be a third uh, good water in the middle, a third solids on the bottle bottom and no more than a third scum and lovely floaties on the top. So if you exceed that, it's going to wash out of there and it's going to leave and go to your drain field, which is basically perforated pipe and the soils determine how many linear feet of pipe you need. So the clear water goes out to the drain field, out through the holes, and then there's additional bacteria growing on the outside of the pipe, which consume, that's where the majority of your treatment's taking place, on the outside of the pipe where the bacteria live, and then it infiltrates into the soil. And that's in theory how it should work, unless you plug your drain field or drop a stick of dynamite, that's a new one. Yeah, that sometime. Yeah, it didn't work out so well. And you mentioned soil. So if the soil is is wet by nature, like say it's in a river river basin area, you're going to need longer leach fields, right? Because you're going to have if you have the clear liquids that are leaking out of the perforated pipe, it's not going to be absorbed as well into the earth. And is that true? And I mean, I know because this lady that called us on the one in Illinois, she mentioned when it rains. So is there some correlation that when it rains, there's a lot of moisture? In the in the ground on the ground, and if the tank is completely full, there's no and people are also simultaneously flushing the toilet. Is that why it was getting back up into her sewer, into her shower? It is because the soil can't uh, basically accept any more liquid. In the ideal world, most modern code requires, I think, a three to five foot separation from the bottom of your drain field pipe to any groundwater. So. Um, that's the, one of the number one killers of drain fields, saturated ground or high water table. So that's why you'll see a lot of these mound systems yep. to get above the groundwater. That's the whole point of them. And the mounds is just basically like a big hill and it, 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 the, the liquid goes into there. So it has basically, it's basically creating earth vertically to absorb the moisture. Is that right? Right. It's a, basically like a six foot wide by maybe four feet tall, long mound, and your pi- drain field pipe is going right down the middle of that. That's that. Can we, I have a this park in Iowa that's got the leach fields, and I don't know how long it is, call it 100 feet. Um, I'd like to expand. I've got 15 acres or so of additional room. To, I don't have the permits yet, but to, to potentially expand. Am I going to have, is there, a, what's, my, what's my solution to get rid of that, leach fields i mean do i have to go to city sewer at that point or can i re- realign this the leach fields i i feel like i can't put concrete roads on top of it because it could crush them are you allowed to build on these or do you have to have dedicated earth kind of like pond on the lagoon they have to be dedicated um compaction is going to kill you so you don't want to put gravels or roads or anything like that on top of them so you basically you could add additional drain field and or tankage to increase the number of homes, assuming you can get permits and the soils are acceptable. So you'll wanna have a soils guy out there and they'll come and take some corings and basically tell you based on your soil, this soil will accept so many gallons per day. And off of that, from that number, if you wanna add 10 homes, you're gonna need so many feet of drain field. All right. 
makes sense. That's what I thought the process was. I just ideally I'll hook up to city sewers right next door, but they want to annex me first. So that's, that's kind of the, and they don't like trailer parks. So they, I got a couple, a couple uphill battles there, but um, sewer is one of them. So, all right. So I think we've hit the trifecta of private sewer. Let's tackle well. Uh, tell us what a well is and uh, how that works. Yeah, can we circle back to Lagoon really quick? Yeah, sure. There's a couple, couple things that people typically miss. Um, the big killers of lagoons are sludge. So remember the bacteria reproduce, and then there's extra of them. They died and fall to the bottom. And anything that's not digestible that gets flushed down the pipes goes into your lagoon. And when the bugs die and fall to the bottom, we call that sludge. So typically a lagoon is the ultimate deferred maintenance program. You're gonna be adding a half inch to an inch of sludge per year to your pond. And at some point you have to get rid of that. Right. And you know, mom and pop didn't do it. Oh, yeah. And the park is 40 years old at a half inch a year, that's 20 inches. Basically figure you got two to three feet of sludge in the bottom you now own. Now, why do I have to get rid of it? I, mean, I, I, I realize I have to get rid of it if that makes my pond smaller and I don't have capacity to get to ponds, you know, two and three. Um, but assuming the pond was, oh, I looked at a park where the pond was built for 200 and they only ever built 50 pads. So that pond had lots of capacity in that instance where it was, the pond was oversized for the actual number of homes. Can I get away with not dredging the sludge for years and years and years and years? depending on your permit. So most of these ponds are six feet deep-ish. So usually in that boilerplating, it'll say when sludge equals 40% or 50% of the volume, you must desludge even if it's still working. Got it. There'll be a threshold number in there. So, you know, you could drop hundred, $150,000 really quick desludging a lagoon. Holy cow. So, you know, the question is, where are you going to send it once you desludge it? You, you may have another reason why you need more than one pond. The, you may need to de completely dewater and get excavators in there to get it out, or you may have to send a dredge out there. I know, so, a, guy, I know a guy that owns a dredging company, and I've been to his house, and judging by the size of his house, dredging hiring a dredging company is very expensive so you do not want to have to do that yeah the other thing with lagoons is we all assume they hold water right that's the basic assumption a lot of lagoons were built where they never should have been built in the 50s and 60s in riverbeds and all and functionally a lot of it's going out the bottom and contaminating the groundwater um so that's a huge thing you have to consider. You really need to confirm that it was built correctly with some good clay material, either native or imported, and that it actually holds water. A lot of states require what's called a seepage test, where they'll actually monitor and set up some controls how much water seeps out the bottom of your lagoon on a daily basis. And there's a regulatory threshold of what's an allowed amount of leakage. So that's, you know, if they require you to do this and they say you fail, 
you're going to be building a new lagoon and hopefully you have room for a replacement and they're going to make you put a pond style liner in there right and just the liner on an acre is going to be about seventy thousand dollars for the liner material wow so what we do is we either have boring done to see what the native material is like and where groundwater is in relation to the lagoon or we excavate some potholes around the lagoon. So another no-no potholes with an excavator, dig down 10, 15 feet and see what the soil looks like. And uh, you're looking, hopefully you're in a site that has lots of really good clay is right. ideally what you're looking for. And you don't want to find groundwater. Right. Because if groundwater is within 10 feet, typically of the bottom of the lagoon, it never should have been built. So then you can't replace it if you need to. And technically you're in violation of modern code and you have to decide whether you want to turn yourself in or not. So, so if I'm buying a part of the lagoon, what do I do as my due diligence? Do I need to get the borings um, or dig these potholes at that time? Yeah, so we do a sludge survey. We go out in the pond and grid work it up, see how deep the sludge is. And we either do boring or excavating usually three or four holes around the perimeter of the pond to get us groundwater depth and native material. Um, what is that, if I hired you to do that, what does that type of inspection cost? Sludge survey is not that big of a deal. You know, that's like a probably a day project or half a day project. If you have to get a drill rig on site, you know, you could be spending, I don't know, three, $4,000 to for a day's worth of drilling. So the I mean, first, you, first, first step is a sludge test. And we're talking in the hundreds of dollars or up to a thousand dollars. And then if it kind of fails, that's when I got to go to the next level and dig. Yeah, you should do both. But I mean, if you're, if the pond has got four feet of sludge in it, then you're probably not going to want to spend more money on it unless it's a massively discounted part. Got it. So. And the sludge, same thing as the treatment plant. You got to haul somebody to scoop it up and take it away and dump it in an approved yep. facility and they charge you by the gallon yeah or the ton if they dewater it like part of the reason i like the park we bought in kansas is it came with a bonus 55 acres of farmland so i can apply my own sludge on my own land and i don't have to pay to dispose of it got it you know so with a lagoon lagoons take up a lot of space but you also need backup lagoon area you got bonus sludge applying area. So it's not something you want to go short on acreage is what I'm saying, if possible. I'm glad I sold the one that I had because we had no extra acreage. I didn't know, know any of this at that time, but um, it was out of the country. So I was like, if the city makes us connect, city, city sewers a long way away, that's going to cost more than the park is worth. We right. Sell this thing. All right, Philip. Well, let's let's tackle well and then wrap up after that. I think we will hit the hit the high ones. Yeah. So well water. You know, hopefully you got more than one well for a backup. Um, and basically, it's a hole going down into the ground, and you hit a permeable area saturated with groundwater, and then you'll have a pump down in the bottom of the well that pushes the water up, and then it'll go to any treatment, if you're chlorinating and or removing hardness, iron, the list goes on, arsenic, uranium, it 
you name it, it's there. Not in every well, hopefully. Um, and then it'll go to either a pressurized storage uh, vessel, we call a pressure tank, or to a non-pressurized reservoir, um, maybe a thousand to five thousand gallons, or maybe even a hundred thousand if you have a larger part. And then in a non-pressurized reservoir, you'll need a booster pump to get it out to the park. In a pressure tank, your well pump will be doing all that sort of work. And then, you know, it's going to go out in your distribution pipes to the community. And uh, hopefully they didn't run the line, all the lines down the middle of the homes, which they always do. Oh, and hopefully they're large enough, which they never seem to be. So <laughs> Murphy was an optimist. That's what I reminded yeah. right now. <laughs> all right, Philip, what is it? What does a well cost to replace and what is the ongoing maintenance uh, expenses? And I, I give the comment too that similar to the other other private utilities, I think you're going to take a hit on your cap rate when you refinance or sale or sell uh, due to this. But um, well water always scares me a little bit more, even though I think it's probably I probably like it better than Lagoon, but it scares me a little bit because people are drinking it. So like there's a legitimate life safety issue where you got to make sure you're providing safe water. And a lot of these old wells are not done are not functional at this point, so you got to replace them. Yeah, so there's a wide variation of cost for a well. Um, number one, assuming you have a replacement area. So if you have private sewer, you're gonna have to have setbacks, usually 100 to 300 feet from any septic field or that kind of stuff. And you also have to have setbacks from any hard sewer lines. So if you have a tight park and you got all the lines, even the lines going from the homes, count for your setback. So the setbacks can be nearly impossible if you're in a typically normally dense park, you know, like 10, 10 pads per acre or so, where are you gonna put the well with the setbacks? Assuming you have a spot, um, let's just say your well is less than 500 feet. You're probably gonna be somewhere between around $20,000 or so. Uh, you could go up to 50 or 60 or even higher if you have to go deeper. So um, that's kind of the range. Some areas, you know, your wells are only 100 or 200 feet. So your cost is going to be much lower than. Um, I've been to here in Kansas City, there's a McCormick distillery. It's the only place that makes real bourbon outside of Kentucky. And it's because it's got the limestone uh ground and water this special water apparently but during the tour of the distillery you get to look at a well and it's probably 20 feet in diameter and it goes down several hundred feet and it was dug by hand a long time ago i'm like this guy i was born one person but these people really wanted to dig that well so i haven't i've had an appreciation for <laughs> wells ever since seeing that yeah most wells for mobile home park land are either six or eight inch wells um, I did look at a park kind of over St. Louis area. He had a 1400 foot well and a package plant. So he's like firing on all cylinders for CapEx expenditures there. You know, we operate a well system with a thousand foot well and just to replace the pump um, is about 40 grand just on the pump. Wow. But most 
most of the time you should be in the 10 grand neighborhood for a pump, you know, 10, 15 grand tops. How much all in to, to build a well, you know, between you dr drilling it, the pump, the tanks to the, for the reservoirs, the pressurized tanks, what's the all in cost if everything was failing? Well, the, so let's just say we're going to call it 20 grand for the well and 10 grand for the pump. So that's 30. The big question with your reservoir is, are you building a great big guy? If, so here's the trade-off. If the well is making low flow rate, you have to store it for peak usage. But if you have a well that makes a high flow rate, you don't need as big of a reservoir. Say like your well, say you're using 10,000 gallons a day and you got a well that's only going to make five or 10 gallons a minute, you're going to need a big reservoir. So you have to kind of look at what's happening there. But typically on a 30 to 50 space park, you would probably want a three to 5,000 gallon reservoir. So the reservoir and booster pumps are going to hit you 50 grand bigger. So you're getting close to a hundred grand. I just heard when you added the engineer and the attorney in there. So I don't know. You need an attorney for that one, but uh, you need a, you need a financial advisor to tell you to run, <laughs> unless you're buying this at a really good price. Um, that's good stuff, Philip. Oh, you, you're shared a ton of information here. This is uh, your wealth of knowledge, clearly. Um, what any other tips or tricks before we go? And and if you don't have anything else you want to add, don't let me forget to uh, tell us where we can find you so people can uh, can hire you to give them give your opinion and analysis on these things yeah what i always see like on the lagoons and the package plants when people are underwriting them they don't actually put good operating cost numbers in there they evaluate them like it's a city park and you can't because you're up you just add that 30k of operating expense and it really changed your noi at the end of the day oh yeah so don't evaluate them and assume they're like a city park add at least another 30 days of DD on there because digging up the paperwork and dealing with the government. And it's probably going to be one of the latter things you do in your DD anyway. So, you know, the financials and the location and everything else is not checking. You're not going to drop money on the lagoon or the package plant. Right. So, so add a little more time if possible and then hire an expert. Uh, whether it's me or somebody else, I don't necessarily care, but don't do it by yourself, I guess, is the bottom line. You're not as good a salesman as I am, Philip. <laughs> <laughs> and hire a lawyer, and I do care who you are. Yeah, I mean, come on, man. No, I'm just giving you crap. That's great. That's, that's great advice, though, in general. And, and uh, I'll definitely hire you next time we have one of these to, uh, to underwrite because it takes expertise. You know this stuff like the back of your hand. It's clear. So appreciate it. Where can people reach out to you, Philip? Yeah, you can check out our website. It's merrillwater.com, M-E-R-R-I-L-L-W-A-T-E-R.com. We have a whole section with mobile home park resources on there. Um, you can just email me at info at merrillwater.com. And uh, you can, I'm sure you can find my phone number on there. It's 503-734-7400. So we're available for consulting and or buying stuff. The more drama, the better, you know. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Philip. Appreciate it. Yep. Thanks.
You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.